Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for human evil, desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. For it is the time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Our Lord God, we thank you that in your mercy you have revealed yourself to us in your word. That you didn't choose to remain hidden but you made yourself known and you made known to us your will for this world a world where all things will come under submission to your son and so we ask that you would help us submit to him this morning enable us to listen to your words and be changed by them so that we would be the people that we ought to be Change us by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're looking at chapter 4 of 1 Peter this morning. And in chapter 4, Peter revisits a bunch of topics that he's already talked about in his letter. To give you a rough picture, in the first six verses, he talks about sin. From verse 7, he talks about service. And then from verse 12, he talks about suffering. But if you've been with us throughout this series, you will have probably noticed that these all sound familiar. He's spoken about 
all of these things before in this five-chapter letter. And that's because this whole letter is about Christians changing, about Christians living new lives. See, Peter told us right at the start, everyone who trusts in Jesus gets given a new life. He says, you've been given new birth into a living hope. But now he wants to help us live out those new lives. And so in the beginning here of chapter 4, Peter gives us a description of the person who lives the new life. Now, he's finished chapter 3 talking about Christ's suffering. He said, Christ suffered for sins once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And then he begins chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. Now, we're going to come back to the bit about suffering in a moment, but did you notice what the difference is between the old person and the new person? What is it that marks the difference between the person before they know Christ and are willing to suffer for him and after? It's their desires. Have a look, verse 2. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God, for God's desires. The difference between the non-believer and the believer is they're not controlled by their old desires. They have new ones. They have God's desires. And this is really important for us because everything that you do You do because of your desires. You are a creature of desire. That's not how we like to think of ourselves. We like to think of ourselves, and modern Western culture likes to promote this idea that humans are rational creatures, that we are thinkers, that we make all our decisions using our intellect. And so... If you want to change your behaviour, the solution, according to our culture, is knowledge. Which is why every time our culture encounters a problem, what's our solution? What's our answer to it? Education. Every time. You got a problem with racism in your AFL football club? I haven't seen it yet, but I'm sure the answer is going to be education. If you have a problem with young men being violent towards women, what's the solution according to our culture? Education. And the end result is a school curriculum that's jam-packed, teachers are stressed out because they're being asked to teach everything, but we don't get much progress on our problems. Now, don't get me, I'm not against education. Education is useful, but it doesn't work at changing human behaviour because we're not actually rational creatures. We can think, our brains are very good, but our thoughts don't control us, our feelings do. Paul Tripp writes an article on this topic, and his opening line says, You and I are creatures of desire. Everything you ever choose, do, or say 
is the product of desire. Now, if you don't believe me, I've got three letters for you. KFC. <laughs> Tell me, why do people eat KFC? Is it because they have gone through a careful process of rational thought and come to the conclusion that they should eat 7,000 kilojoules of fried chicken? No, of course not. No one at KFC drive through right now is thinking to themselves, this is smart. They're not doing that. Why? Because they're not thinking, they're feeling. They're craving. And it's the same reason that people play the pokies. And the game tells you it's irrational. It says you will not win, and yet people do. Why? They like the feeling. It's the same reason we do lots of silly things, stupid things. It's the same reason that you have arguments with your husband or your wife. It's not about who's right or wrong. We all know that. It's about how the other person hurt your feelings. It's the same reason Adam and Eve took the fruit in the garden. They saw that the fruit looked good. It was desirable. Now, we're not controlled by our thoughts. We're controlled by our desires. And those desires can get us into a whole lot of trouble, but they actually also lead to us doing a whole lot of good. Desires aren't bad. The fact is they're responsible for some of the very best things that we do. If we only ever act, acted rationally, we'd never be kind, because kindness is often irrational. Jumping into the ocean to rescue someone who's drowning, that, that's irrational. Pulling over to help someone whose car's broken down on the side of the road, it's irrational. Helping people is costly. Helping people puts you in danger. But we still do it, don't we? Why? Because we like the feeling. We like helping people. Now, if we only ever used our brains, if we only operated at the level of the intellect, we'd never do lots of other good things. You would never have kids. Because <laughs> that's irrational. It's costly, but it's good. It's good. <laughs> we are creatures of desire. And here's the, here's the thing. Peter knows this. And so... When he wants to see followers of Jesus living transformed lives, he doesn't just give us a things-to-do list. He doesn't just give us a list of commands. It wouldn't work. Now, he does command things, but what Peter does here is he takes us right down to the level of our desires, to our hearts. He's been doing that right throughout the whole letter. He began by filling our view with God's grace, showing us how good God has been to us, and then in response to that, he's been showing us how to live. If we're going to be changed, if we're going to live new lives, we actually need new desires. We need to exchange our sinful human desires for God's desires for the will of God and so what are these desires and more importantly what is it that will produce them well Peter gives us three areas to look at the first thing we see in our passage is that the gospel will grow in us a new desire to be done with sin 
All of us at one stage were controlled by what Peter calls evil human desires. He gives us a list in verse 3, but basically he has in mind the things that most people do when the thing that drives them is the desire to do whatever they want. That's how most people live, don't they? They do what they want. But those who have the same attitude as Jesus, who went to the cross to please his Father, will also stop living for their own desires and instead live for God. It's not that we won't be tempted by sin. In fact, in verse 4, Peter points out that our unbelieving neighbours will be so horrified by the fact that we choose not to sin that they'll abuse us for it. They'll abuse us for not jumping on that self-serving train. But friends, the sure sign that we have new hearts is that even in the face of that abuse, even when it is costly, we will say to our non-Christian neighbours, been there, done that, never again. Enough of that. Friends, one of the sure signs that you've been given new birth into a living hope, one of the sure signs that God's Spirit is living in you and is transforming you is not just whether you sin, but whether you want to sin. Because the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not whether they sin, but both will sin. You will keep sinning as a Christian. Now, hopefully there is a difference in the frequency of your sin and the severity of your sin, but you will still sin. But what should be crystal clear is that the Christian hates their sin. And so let me ask you, do you hate your sin? Do, Do you find yourself doing things which dishonor God and you hate it? If you do, praise God for that. That's a good thing. I mean, it would be better to not sin at all, but he is giving you that new desire. He is growing in you the desire to please him. And so when we recognize that, praise God, thank him, that he is helping us to hate what is wrong, to hate what he hates. Now, these new desires will make us look like an idiot in the eyes of our friends and neighbors. They'll ridicule us. They may even heap abuse on us. But we need to remember what Peter shows us in verses 5 and 6. There is only one person's opinion that should matter to us. There is only one person's opinion that will matter to anyone in the end. It's the one who will come to judge the living and the dead. In verse 7, Peter wants us to know that the day of judgment is not all that far away. He says, the end of all things is near. The day of God's judgment is coming. The day when we receive our never-ending, never-fading inheritance is soon. And so what should we do? He says, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Now, we've heard that before. In fact, three times in this letter, Peter instructs us to be alert and of sober mind. And it says something about our world, doesn't it? 
Because why would Peter remind us three times to be alert and sober-minded unless the normal way that people behave is oblivious and drunk? But that is our world, isn't it? Not drunk with alcohol, but our society is drunk. Our society stumbles around, not knowing where it's going, not knowing what is good for it. And so Peter says, don't be like that. Be alert. Be sober. Know where this world is headed. Know who rules it. Because when you know, it will not only mean that you will pray, but that you will know what to pray. The alert and sober-minded person knows what pleases God and so prays in line with God's desires. Now, the kind of prayer that Peter speaks of here is likely prayers offered for other people because he goes on in verses 8 to 11 to talk about practical ways of serving our fellow believers. And so I think his point is, here, be alert and of sober-minded so you can pray well for others. You can also pray for yourself. But then in verse 8 to 11, he goes on to speak about service. Because the gospel will create in us a new desire to serve wholeheartedly. And here he has in view not so much what we do, but how we do it. He speaks in very broad categories. If anyone serves, well, there's a whole lot of things that could look like, but he does have in mind our attitude, our desire. Our love for each other should be the kind that can absorb the cost of sin. Our hospitality should be generous, without grumbling. And the way that we serve and the way that we speak should not be self-promoting, but motivated and empowered and directed towards the praise of God. Has God given you this desire to serve? Uh, I come across a lot of people, and I'm not, not pointing at anyone, I don't have anyone in particular in mind, but I do come across a lot of people who serve in church out of, out of guilt or out of compulsion, or they just feel like that's what you have to do when you're in church. But do you see what Peter's saying here? The gospel actually gives us a desire to do that. Not to do that with grumbling, not to do that begrudgingly, but to want to do that, to delight in serving others, to delight in bringing praise to God as we do that. The gospel gives us a new desire to stop sinning. The gospel gives us a new desire to start serving. But in verse 12, Peter returns to the topic of suffering. It's a topic that comes up again and again in this letter, doesn't it? He clearly has in mind people who are suffering or he has in mind people that he will expect to suffer. But he shows us that the gospel actually gives us the desire to suffer, to continue, to endure in suffering. Now, we talked about this a lot last week. If you are struggling to understand how suffering could be good for God's people, go listen to last week's sermon. But here, Peter teaches us four things about suffering. First, he teaches us that we shouldn't be surprised when we suffer as Christians. 
Now, our selfish desires might lead us to expect that we should only ever receive nice things in life, that we should only ever experience pleasant things. But when our desires are aligned with God's, we'll come to see that suffering is not only normal for Christians, but it's also good. Which leads us to the second thing that Peter teaches us about suffering, which is that suffering is good because God is using it to test us. Now, uh, testing here is not kind of a pass-fail scenario. God is not sending us trials to rate how good we do at enduring them. There's not going to be a leaderboard in heaven. No, testing here is God strengthening us. The image here that Peter uses is of fire. And he has in mind a fire that is both God's judgment on sin, but also a refining fire, a purifying fire, a fire that strengthens his people. The fire, the the fiery ordeal that we are to endure is good because it actually makes us purer, it makes us stronger. He's not giving us suffering to destroy us or to throw us off. He's doing it because he loves us and he wants us to grow. The third thing that Peter teaches us about suffering is that it is a blessing that makes us rejoice. Just as Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross so that he might gain us, we, for the joy set before us, endure suffering, so that we might gain him. But in verse 14, Peter seems to indicate that those who suffer as a result of following Jesus will even have a heightened experience of God's presence and a taste of future glory. He says, the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering is to be expected. Suffering is God's way of strengthening our faith. Suffering is a blessing that we can rejoice over because it helps us to experience God's presence even more. But the fourth thing that Peter teaches us in verses 17 to 18 is that while suffering might be hard, The alternative, which is to give up on Jesus, is far worse. And so instead, in verse 19, rather than giving up the right response to suffering, if you are suffering as a Christian, the right response is to entrust ourselves to Jesus. To give ourselves to him, to trust that he is good, to trust that he will do what is good for us. Now, friends, it's one thing to know all this. It's one thing to know that we shouldn't sin. To know that we should serve fellow Christians. To know that suffering is used by God for our good. It's one thing to know all this. It's quite another thing to want it. How how do we get this desire to live for God. We, we won't be changed by just trying harder or thinking about 
our behavior. We actually need new desires. How do we get them? How do you get to the point where nothing else will satisfy you other than God himself? When the only thing that you ever want is to please him. How do you get that? Well, it can be helpful for us to consider what are the competing desires in our lives. We are creatures of desire. The question is which desires are controlling us. And so it's worth taking the time to discover what desires are controlling you. It may be that you're being controlled by your desire for other people's approval. And so you do whatever it takes to get other people to like you. It may be that you're being controlled by a desire for comfort and for safety. And so you do whatever it takes to get those things, which will as it happens, mean that you resist suffering, that you, you compromise on your faith as, so as to avoid suffering. It may be that you are being controlled by your desires for pleasure. Now, it's worth recognising those competing desires. It's worth asking the question. It's worth interrogating them and, and asking whether those things are really serving you. Are they really helping you? Are they giving you meaning and purpose in life? Now that's helpful. It's helpful also for us to fix our eyes on Jesus and to be reminded of what he has done for you. It is helpful, in a sense, to be educated about the gospel, to know it. But ultimately, there's only one way for your desires to be changed. There's only one way that you could actually possibly live the kind of life that Peter is showing us here in this chapter. And and it won't be from you. you. You can't do this yourself. God has to give it to you. Only God can change your heart. Only God can give you these new desires. Now, that might leave you feeling really frustrated Because, you know, I can't do it myself. But, friends, that is good news. Because not only does God have to be the one who changes your desires, but he is the one who does, who will, who offers us new hearts. This should not leave us feeling helpless, but it should leave us clinging to the one who, to his Old covenant people in Ezekiel 36 gave the promise that I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And friends, by God's spirit, that is what he does for his people. If you have put your trust in Jesus, you have God's spirit and he is working in you to give you these new desires. So let's keep turning to him. Let's keep praying and asking that he would give us hearts that delight in God and delight in pleasing God as we follow his will. Let's pray. Lord God, we have spent too long following the desires of our own hearts looking for satisfaction in this life in things that cannot offer it, living for ourselves 
all the while hurting other people and dishonouring you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would give us new hearts, that you would continue to work in us so that we might say, enough with sin, and so that we might actually love what you love and what you say is good for us. Give us the desire to please you and make that desire so strong that even when our non-Christian neighbours abuse us or ridicule us for our lifestyle, enable us to persevere. Give us the desire to serve each other, not so that people might look at us and tell us how good we are, but that people might look at us and tell you how good you are. Lord, give us the desire to even suffer for the sake of the precious hope that we have. Lord, keep us following after Jesus. Give us joy in knowing that we can be counted as one of his. And even if that should cost us our lives, may we die rejoicing that we will get you, that we will gain you. Lord, give us these desires, work in us and through us, so that we might be a blessing to others and that we might bring glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.